often do during our Ask the Pastor Sundays, we um, start with a reading of today's gospel. So in the the season of the church, we are on Christ the King Sunday, which is the final um, Sunday in the liturgical calendar. So next week starts Advent, and that begins a new liturgical year in the church. And so Christ the King Sunday is uh, is a Sunday where we sort of reflect on what it means that Christ is King. So the text for this Sunday is from John's Gospel, the 18th chapter. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And then if we were to continue, Pilate would say, what is truth? But they cut it off. We like that question, so I added it. Right. (laughs) I heard Pastor Natalia read that at the first service, and even so, I was still waiting for that next question. I know. He was looking at me at the last service, and I was like, that's, we're done. It's good. But the next, the next line is, and what is truth, Pilate asks. So it's fun uh, to think about um, the series of questions asked in this uh, scripture assigned to this final Sunday in the church liturgical calendar and makes it appropriate that that's what we're here to do, make some room, some space for questions, discussions, comments. Um, they, they may be related, in fact, to the liturgical calendar, the liturgical year that we observe in our faith tradition and in this church specifically. Um, maybe uh, it's something that you have valued, the sort of rhythm of the church year. Now we move into Advent, which is followed by the short season of uh, Christmas and then Epiphany. And then we, you know, we continue on through all of the seasons of the year. Maybe that's something that you have appreciated. Maybe you'd like to share what it is you appreciate about that, about being part of a tradition that, that does um, move in the rhythms of the, of the liturgical calendar. Christ the King Sunday. Uh, has a, a, a really interesting history in the church, uh, and theologically it brings up really rich ground uh, that we might want to spend some time digging into. The, the the real essence, I think, of the of the tension in this in this gospel reading is about authority and power. You know, the 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 one who appears uh, to have all of the power and the authority really is clearly not in control of things, the one who appears to have very little, if not, if, you know, any authority at all, in some sense appears to own the power in this dynamic. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating. It's interesting to think that Jesus often answers a question with another question, as, uh, he does in this passage with Pilate. Uh, and so, uh, um, just uh, lots of rich ground there for us to consider. Um, what is truth is that question that was kind of left hanging out there. And it's, you know, it's echoed through the centuries in 
I think we would agree it's as relevant today as it has ever been. Uh, so maybe you have questions about the Bible. Maybe you have questions about the church, your experience of the church, or of the variety of experiences that there are to be had. Maybe you've got a question related to a passage of Scripture. Um, well, all we ask is that you know there are no wrong questions, no bad questions. As you know, we do not uh, sit up here as the religious experts ready to clear everything up for you. We are simply here as kind of guides to help uh, arbitrate a discussion as we as we wrestle with these things together. So uh, what we do need is someone brave enough to get us started. And once we do, I'm quite confident we'll keep going. And Nick will throw up a, a timer for us just because time tends to get away from us when we enter into these discussions and we'll have some sense of where we're at. So here we we're go. Ready. What is the difference between a spirit and a soul? Or are those two different words for the same thing? Hmm. Do you want the Greek or do you want just like our, our random thoughts? English will help. <laughs> Speak of the English. Uh, I mean, the word that we translate as soul often in the, in the Bible is zoe, which is uh, the Greek word that means like the source of life. So a living thing or the source of your life. And then the word we translate as spirit is pneuma, which uh, means breath or wind or spirit. So um, they are two different words. They are not used interchangeably in scripture, um, even though in English we tend to use them that way. Brent, do you want to move just a little so I can see Jeff? Hey, there he is. It's <clears throat> perfect. <laughs> see the person I'm talking to. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep, so um, they are d- different concepts. They are not, um, uh, they are distinct from one another in, in the Bible and in our sort of theological um, treatment of these terms. Uh, so the spirit, uh, there can be kind of spirit, the small s uh, spirit, like a school spirit, and the, the spirit of the sense of things, I, like I, the spirit of the room seemed this or that, or, you know, but, but then there's also the, the, the Holy Spirit, you know, so the indwelling of the Spirit, where we would think of it as the kind of the big S Spirit, the presence of the Spirit. So the Spirit, in in those senses, really is um, uh, an expression of the Godhead. It, it's it's part of God's reality, which is separate and other than ourselves. So it it comes from without. It is not the same as you know. I can speak of having my own Spirit. But uh, this, uh, the spirit in that sense is is, the, is God's presence, God's uh, r- manifestation of God's self. You know, Holy Spirit. The soul is we sort. Of, there's a kind of modern, you know, this sort of dialectic, this this dualism, which comes from the ancient Greek philosophies, which which is uh, confusing and and often kind of something we maybe misunderstand and, and, and kind of wrestle with. All of that is to say, you know, as, as uh, the soul is separate than, other than, separate from me. Like there's the, like the real me is the soul and the body is just this shell, this kind of casing that's charged with carrying the soul around while I live on this earth. And then the real me kind of continues hereafter. That's very, that's really contrary to our Lutheran confessional theological understanding of what soul is. 
So we believe in a real death, gone, dead, ceasing to exist, not the soul continues on and Chad's body has now died. We believe in real death because we also believe in real resurrection of the complete unified whole of the of the being. So I'm saying two different things to you here. One is spirit is distinct and other than the, un, the understanding of soul, but also that soul is often misunderstood to be this sort of eternal part of ourselves that lives on and never dies, and also oftentimes is better than the physical self. So, you know, try to, you know, try to deny your physical self and disdain it even, because the soul is the true, holy, eternal part of you, and that's the part that matters. And that's the part that escapes from you when this terrible physical self dies. This is really contrary to our understanding of, of, of Scripture and certainly contrary, again, to our Lutheran confessional theological understanding of these things. So a little bit of deep water you put us into right away there. Uh, and, and not only could we spend the rest of the time talking about it, but... Big fat books are on our shelves that, that deal with, but it's, it's a, it's a great question and something people wrestle with. So hopefully we touched on it a bit. Thank you. I'm going to keep it in the family for one more. Keep it in the family. I was say our family have a lot of questions. <laughs> um, so in the Bible, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. And a lot of Christians put a huge emphasis on that passage and a lot of Christians take that very seriously that you can't get to the heaven unless you believe in Jesus. So I guess my question is what about the people who pick the wrong religion and they spend their whole lives de- like dev- devoted to their own Are you religion? talking about non-Lutherans? <laughs> Just like yeah, I guess. Yes, it sounds Yeah, everyone else who spend their whole life devoted to their own religion following a different God of their own, having their own morals, following the rules, being good people, but they pick the wrong religion. So what happens then? <clears throat> I just recorded a whole episode about this on a, on a podcast. So I have a lot of things to say. Do you want to say something first? Or you want to just go? You've started already. So, <laughs> um, so I think there's... Uh, so in, in a podcast I'm in, one of the things my co-host said that we've gotten a little pushback on was all paths to the same summit. And I've had a lot of questions of people saying, why didn't you push back more on that? Like, that's not Christian. How dare you? Why don't you push back on that more? Like, that's not true. And we even got a little of that at the last service when somebody said, like, isn't, isn't the Trinity truth? And what do you say to people who think their religion is truth? And, I mean, I think this is a pretty significant question that people have. I, I find that text to be um, one, personally, one of the most misunderstood texts. Um, and I will try to make this shorter than the answer I gave on the podcast, which took like 12 minutes, and we don't quite, I mean, we have that, but I'm not going to use it all on this. So I think um, when, when Jesus... Uh, so when people say, don't you believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, then what about everybody else? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, because I don't think, I think Jesus 
reveals who God is to us. That's all over scripture. That's how many gospels begin telling the story is saying like Jesus is how God is revealed, right? Jesus is how God shows up in the world and shows us, you know, sort of the best way God exists in the world. But I also think, and, and I do think Jesus changed the way we get to come to God, right? So if you go into the, the story of the, resur- or the, of the crucifixion, and it talks about that curtain in the temple where it was split from ceiling to floor, and suddenly, uh, you know, we, we could approach God. Everybody was allowed to approach God. Or as I have said, like, and Chad has said this too, like God was, we prefer the phrase, like God was sort of let free or let out of the temple and out into the world. And I think you can say to somebody who doesn't necessarily believe the same thing that I do that, uh, I believe Jesus changed the way we can approach God. Jesus made God available to more people. Jesus came to the world to say, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you, person who has believed by the, you know, lottery of where they were born or who they were born to, uh, something different. You know, that person, I still believe Jesus came for that person. I still believe Jesus came for that person. And I believe Jesus changed the path to make it wider (laughs) Uh, and to open up so that it wasn't just the one high priest that got to experience the Holy of Holies or Jewish high priests or scribes that got to get, you know, a little closer or Jewish men and then Jewish women. And then, you know, there was this whole hierarchy of who was allowed to get kind of sort of close-ish to God. And instead it was like, no, God is, God is out there. And so do I believe God is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Yes. Do I believe that this is some, like, it's, it's, be used, it's being used as a threat instead of a promise, where it's like, I believe Jesus is, is the way, and that has happened already, and there is no, like, requirement of right belief in order for Jesus' work in the world to work on you. It has already happened. The path has been created, and we are just lucky to be on it, but I think I mean, this, this idea, I said this at the first service too, but this word that we translate as believe so often, in my personal opinion, should be translated as truth or trust. It should be translated as when Jesus says, trust in me, trust also in God. It's not believe in me, believe in God. It's, hey, trust that I did this thing. Trust that this works. Trust that I have widened, I have torn the curtain and God is available. And I think that's different than being like, hey, Believe in me or else. That's a, that's not, I don't feel like that sort of idea of God is really backed up in scripture. And so it requires a little shift of your thinking, I think, to say, uh, you know, believe in me or to, to say like, this is a, it's a trust thing. I believe what Christ has done worked. <laughs> uh, for me and for somebody who doesn't believe exactly the same thing as me. Okay. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to add on to that? Yeah, I, Your I, response to Jay, you should just repeat that whole thing. Oh, well, um, <laughs> I think that, um, I think first of all, just that particular verse that's often cited doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily sort of weighted down with the exclusivity that is assumed in the question when people ask that. For instance, to say that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father by me doesn't necessarily mean that the... Uh, Messiah warrior I encounter out in the Serengeti and get into a conversation with, and he tells me he experiences the divine, you know, almighty, what I would call God, uh, in 
in his herd of cattle, for instance, and in the rains that come in season. And uh, it's not, I just, just on this level, it's not, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, all right, you know, before we even get to theology of salvation and so forth, when that Messiah warrior dies, if in fact the God who saw fit to create him, bring him into existence, also welcomes him into some kind of eternal presence of that same God, can it also be said that it is because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him, including that Messiah warrior who never even heard of him? Could that Because Christ is not this localized expression of the Godhead that exists only in these little pockets where people have figured him out. <laughs> he is the from the beginning, all that was created, nothing was created that has been created without Christ. Christ is everywhere. Omnipresent is one of the attributes we give to God, right? So to say that, uh, I think that that, that that particular passage is often used as an exclusive claim, and what it really is implying in the question is that unless you have done, you know, X, Y, and Z, to prove that you think Christ is the only path to salvation, then uh, you're you're in you're in danger somehow. So there's that. Um, the other thing is um, Luther often spoke of uh, the the hidden God versus the revealed God. So what the hidden God is, in fact, you know, my my Maasai friend might be telling me that. You know, he experiences God in the weather. And I say, yeah, but what about the drought two years ago where you lost family members to say nothing of cattle? How do you, well, then that, that God is angry with us at that. You know, God is angry. That proves God's anger with us. And, and you might even say hatred of us at times. Well, then I, you know, that's the hidden God. And we can't do any better than that. God outside of Christ is the hidden God. God revealed is the God proclaimed, which is, God's manifestation of God's self in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that, now we can, now I have something to say to my friend. Get, here's what I think. Here's what I've come to believe. Here's what God has revealed to me. And it, it's not a threat. You don't have to agree with this. I'm not trying to talk you into it. I'm just here to share it. It's a proclamation, right? It's an announcement, if you will. It's not a contention. We're not going to work it out on paper and then uh, debate it, and then one of us is going to win the argument. It's simply, I believe that in Christ, God came and got me, got Chad, and said, I, you know what, for whatever reason, I love you, I claim you, I forgive you, you're mine. And you were brought forward for baptism, so you can walk around thinking that about yourself for the rest of your life. That's a pretty cool thing. You can make the sign of the cross every morning when you get up and say, I am, I belong to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm Child of God. It has very little to do with me or my behavior or my ability to arrive at that conclusion because I'm such a good biblical scholar or any of that <laughs> stuff. It's just what God did for me. And so I say to my, my Messiah friend, now God's doing it to you. Why? Because I'm here saying it to you. I, he doesn't know what to say. or I don't care what he says, honestly. I, God sent me. We're Here we are engaged in this conversation. And don't think I don't have these conversations. But God loves you in Christ, 
in precisely the same way he loves me and accepts me and loves me. Not in a different way, not in a slightly lesser way, because I've gone through Sunday school and confirmation and, you know, I've been ordained in exactly the same way. So whether I got to that guy or I didn't, is it true that every way uh, that Jesus is the, the light, the how does it go? Way the truth. The way, the, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. If uh, my Messiah friend died before I ever got a chance to tell him about that, and he is in then in the eternal presence of God, I say, good on you, God. That's what I would have done if I were God. And I believe that's probably what I know about God's compassion and love and mercy. And But if I get to talk to that guy, I only have... One thing available to me. It's not a word of judgment or condemnation or to talk him out of his own religious inclinations. It's to say, I believe God in Christ loves you, claims you, forgives you, same way God did that for me. Now I'm out. I got to (laughs) go. That's gospel. That's good news. It's not law. Anything else, we start making it law. Only one path, only one way, only one... You know, when you look at Jesus' encounter with all the people he encounters in the Gospels, look at Nicodemus who comes under the cover of darkness. Do any of those encounters, look, look at the, the engagement with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Any of those engagements end with Jesus telling someone to drop to their knees and recite after him the prayer of salvation? I'm, that's just go home and... Read your Bible. (laughs) Read your Bible. Good question. It's a great question. My question is about the book of Matthew. It's somehow conflicting to me. Uh, Some part tells you that when the Son of Man comes in glory, he will separate the goats from the sheep. Mm -hmm. And... uh, he will tell another, he will tell one group that in as much as you did not do this to the least of these membering, you did not do it to me. And in one part, it says that not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that dwells the will of my father, which is in heaven. Then another part is saying, the kingdom of heaven is like unto too many comparisons. So my question is, are these all threats to us or what good does it have for us or what does this mean for us as Christians or people? Thank you, Frank. So it's a related question. Um, uh, you know, there's talk in Matthew's gospel, there's in other places as well about the separating out of the sheep and the goats and the wheat and the chaff and all those kinds of things and you know, the unquenchable fire and uh, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will, you know, will I know. Um, so Jesus certainly was dealing with some strong religious opposition to his ministry and his inclusiveness and his willingness to look beyond the parameters of his own faith tradition, which was well-defined in terms of this is how you know you're a child of God, and here's how we can know you're not. He caused all kinds of trouble with people because he was willing to engage and include people like the woman at the well. And the 
uh, Nicodemus and so, so many others. This is where most of the pushback and the friction is in the Gospels. And so yeah, Christ has some strong words for people. And what, how, what do we make of those? Do we make those normative for the way we understand the faith? Uh, Lutheran theology, and that's why it's good that we do these things. Uh, Lutheran theology talks about the canon within the canon. So there is the canon, the whole of Scripture. We can pull out passages that seem to indicate that really what we're all on a crash cord course toward is some sort of separation of the of the sheep and the goats so you better make sure you're on the right side which is sheep by the way sheep are i, I was going to ask because i good. Goats sometimes are not good. I, yeah whatever but that that, that that passage exists in a context which is in a larger context than the canon within the canon all of it exists within the reality of the death and resurrection of jesus so so on a, on a meta scale, what we can say about every one of us and every person in the world is at some point you are going to come up short. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says Paul. Stand in need of God's redemption. So at some point, we are going to deserve to be on the goat side of the equation. No getting around that. Other than the unwarranted, unmerited, unsolicited mercy and grace of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which has been applied to me irregardless of my own will. It has been marked on me and I've been named with it. So I can't take any credit for it. Now I'm sent out. What am I sent out to say? Well, we just had that conversation. I'm sent out to say that I believe God in Christ chooses you too, whoever you might be in front of me asking this question. If you're asking me to determine out there in the world who might be on the wrong side of this equation, who might be in the end in danger of being goats and not sheep, I am called to be a bearer of good news and that is above my pay grade and beyond, well beyond my responsibility to decide how the world is to be divided up uh, in terms of people's eternal salvation. Our proclamation, our reason for existing as a church, as a community of faith in Christ, is to share the good news with people that God in Christ claims and forgives you. Not because of what you're going to say next, or because you're going to get in our pipeline and go through our program of Sunday school confirmation, however far that goes. It's simply good news. It is gospel. So everybody who wanders in here on Christmas Eve after having not been in church for since last Christmas Eve <laughs> is going to hear, hey, you people, not you better get your act together. You're on thin ice here. You might end up being chaff or a goat or whatever else. Um, God loves you. We are called and claimed and forgiven and sent to say, in Christ, God loves you. Somebody else can worry about who's in and who's out. 
I, I submit to you that that was the very temple that Jesus said he was going to tear down. Yeah, and I think any time in Scripture when you hear those sort of calls of, like, I think we don't, we shouldn't see it as a threat, but a call to action. Like, hey, who you are in the world matters. Not to God, but to the people in the world who need you to be out there. Not assuming you're a sheep and you're all good and, like, I don't have to do anything because I'm taken care of. So good on me. Because most often we hear Matthew 25 and we're like, well, thank goodness I'm a sheep. You know, like really, that's how the majority of people hear that. They don't hear that and be like, oh man, I'm definitely a goat. I should get my act together. No, most people hear that and think like, well, thank goodness. Thank goodness I'm here. I'm good. Um, but that is just a call. And so often throughout scripture, you know, the, the Isaiah text for today, Chad and I were talking about it last week. I said it was, it's so brutal. The Isaiah text is like, you come in this place and you think you're safe, but you are not safe because you are not out there taking care of the people I have said so many times to take care of. The orphan, the widow, the refugee. Get your act together. And I think like, we can't ignore that and be like, oh, I'm a sheep. Which was also embedded in your question, that scripture, whoever does it and the least of these is done. It's the only safe response, frankly. It's the only safe response to these questions is to reach out to the least of these. If if you're looking for Jesus and you're trying to figure out how to stay close to Jesus, that's the only safe place to go, to, to the oppressed, those imprisoned, those condemned, those ostracized, those set upon, those refugees, uh, whatever category. It's your only safe place to go. Thank you. Do what do you think? One more? Yeah, we can take another one. Um, we talk about someone passing away and moving into the presence of God and the whole concept of heaven seems to contradict what you said earlier about we, when we die, that's it, until the resurrection. I'm sure I'm missing something. <laughs> no, that's good. And that's I, a, it's I, a built-in sort of problem in our, um, in our theology, if you will, uh, this idea of the resurrection of the dead. Because we do not, as uh, Lutherans in our theology, ascribe just to, uh, to uh, what's it called? Uh, the interim place. Uh, oh, purgatory. Purgatory, thank you, yeah. To this sort of, yeah, this sort of limbo, limbo location where you (laughs) hang out waiting for the next thing. Um, so, yeah, we actually say both things and they uh, logically are probably contradictory. We say when someone dies, um, they've been welcomed into the very presence of God. We say this to be comforting. We say this because we believe it, but we also speak of the resurrection of the dead as a real sort of end time, uh, uh, phenomenon. And, you know, one of the kids asked uh, this morning, when did God start? When was God born? And really, this is related to that. We are time-bound creatures. We live in a linear world. We, uh, so we're talking about the, if there's a, if there's an actual sort of, on this side of eternity, a time gap between our death and our actual full-on resurrection, that would be something that would be a reality for us, but not from God's perspective. It's all one moment for God. So there's no real good logical way to speak of these two things, but nearly every 
pastor I've ever known and, and, and I think part, built into our theology, theology is this seeming somewhat contradictory reality that when someone dies we say, uh, thank you Lord, into your hands we commend the spirit of this one, uh, Meaning now we speak in present tense, but also we speak of the resurrection of the dead. It's in the creeds. It's in our statements of faith. It sounds like, well, when is it? Is it now or later? For us, we are bound by these time realities, not God. It's all part of God's kairos. There's even different language for it in the Bible, a different concept of time. God's kairos, God's God's present reality. We speak of eschatology, us being brought forward into God's already real reality. For us, it, we, we, you know, the, uh, there's all kinds of language in our theology that indicates a difference between our own understanding of time and sequence and, and the broader realities of God, telos, the end of things, uh, God's eschaton, the, the future that God is bringing us into, but it already exists for God. I'm sure none of that's helpful, but there <laughs> It's hard because there's like there whole semester long courses mm-hmm. on that one thing and we're asking to do it in five minutes. So it's totally yeah. similar. But I think helpful for me in a promise that is given by Jesus is to the thief on the cross who I feel like most often we should relate ourselves to, which is a person who deserves the thing they're getting at that moment. And Jesus turns to him and doesn't say, you know what, uh, eventually I'm going to come and get you, don't worry about it. He says, no, today you will be with me in paradise. There is a promise given there that is real and true, and and that, that is something we hold on to. That is not purgatory, that's not a place you go and just like wait there, um, and that people can like pay to get you closer to God sooner, that's all just crap. But the reality of like today, that is this you know, this moment, you will be with me, Jesus says. Like Again, it's that idea like Jesus dying and rising changes the way things work. He flips the whole system upside down. And so the system of like paying your way into heaven and earning the thing you're getting, this guy on the cross next to him hadn't done any of that, and even he got this promise today, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. And that's like a thing we just hold on to uh, when we don't understand it. And this resurrection stuff is hard. And and when you're in grief, like some of that stuff, you know, to be like, well, in the future times, like you can't say that to somebody who's who's grieving. But what you can say is, you know, Jesus made a promise that today, this person who died will be with him in paradise. And I like I I just hold on to that. That's all we got, right? So that's when that's when trust is different than belief. When you say, I'm gonna trust that that's true. I'm gonna trust that that's true even though I don't understand it and my brain cannot comprehend God's time versus my time. I'm still gonna trust that that is true. Um, and that's gotta be enough. It's gotta be enough for right now. I don't have all the answers, but that's gotta be enough. I have that one promise made and I'm I'm gonna hold on to that in that moment. Yeah, there's also this aspect of the theology of the cross that indicates that there is no place or death to which we can descend that Christ is not already there with us. So, uh, you know, we, we, everybody loves to read the, the 23rd Psalm at funerals are often, do you know? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for thou art with me. So that, that Jesus does, you know, there isn't a sense in our theology or proclamation that during that if you will, that time frame prior to a resurrection and after our death, that we are just, God is not with us. Christ promises to be with us 
always, through all of it. So in that sense, um, I think there's comfort there. Yeah, the part of what we say in, in, funeral, in our funeral liturgy is if we have been baptized with Christ into a death like his, so shall we be united with him in a resurrection like his. So there's this idea that Jesus died. So when you die, like Jesus has already been there, already redeemed it, already changed it into something new. And I think like that, that's a, that's, I think that's a comforting thing to be reminded. Like we, we die and like that's a thing you can't escape, right? You can pretend like it's not going to happen, but it's going to happen. And we rise. Like that's another thing that happens and you can mm. trust in both of those things. Brent, I think there's a follow-up. Did you have another? Yeah. So the idea of the day of resurrection, did that actually come from Jesus? I mean, did he say that? I don't remember him. Well, it's in the New Testament. I like, not... I like the, let's have a spirit that goes. <laughs> <laughs> if that's helpful for you, I know. hang on to that. Go for I it. Know. It's fine. I know. It's fine. I know. It's, it's one of those things that seminarians are like, what? You know, this idea that it's not just my spirit that lives on forever and floats away and that's the real me and, you know, that there's a, there's, there's this real death that, that happens. Um, so yeah, it comes from, uh, it's, it's, it's born out of New Testament theology. I mean, uh, in the book of Revelation, there's, uh, some treatment of, uh, of, of these, um, ideas. Um, not so much that I can recall, uh, directly from Jesus and his teachings, um, related to death and resurrection. Oh. You're just loosening your arm back there, Rob. I thought you were raising it. Okay. <laughs> I think we got time for one more. If there's one more in the room, we can up right over here. Boom. Get it. First hand. What are your feelings about suicide? Mm. Yeah, and uh in well, I I'll just generalize. So what are what are our feelings or our approach to suicide? There was a a time in certain uh quadrants of church tradition where um people who died by suicide weren't even allowed in the they had to be in a certain section of the cemetery that it was a kind of an unforgivable sin if you will um broadly speaking i would say that we approach uh suicide as we would approach every bit of human brokenness that cries out for god's redemption and mercy and and so uh we grieve for those who have uh, come to that as a solution to whatever it is that that um, they are suffering from. Uh, ultimately, what we have to say to that situation is the uh, God in Christ, in God's mercy, loves, claims, and forgives, and and. Uh, uh, keeps the promises made to this one if we're able to to speak in that way, uh, knowing the history of the person. Uh, if we are not, if we don't know that they were, for instance, uh, baptized at some point or um, were a part of a faith community, then we, then we then we take a step back from there and say, the God I know, who had the compassion to come and claim me and my sinfulness and my brokenness, which has resulted in all sorts of selfishness and meanness and spitefulness, uh, uh, as well as some good stuff along the way, but <laughs> didn't, didn't see fit to condemn me eternally for that, is in, there is, I cannot in any 
any sort of good conscience or understanding of the faith that I proclaim say that God has not done the same for this person who was so broken and so hurt that they thought that this was somehow a solution to what they were suffering from. If, if that's not a crack through which the light of God's grace will shine, then there isn't one. So what we have to say to that is God in Christ is present, loving, compassionate, forgiving. And um, there's uh, the church has been wrong about that over, over time. I think the church has been um, hesitant to say something for fear of being permission-giving, right? So if you say, which the history has been, like somebody who commits suicide has committed the unforgivable sin, therefore they're not going to you know, be in paradise with God in that moment, um, sort of thought to be a deterrent of some sort, like, you know, you won't do this if you think that it's unforgivable, but if we say it's forgivable, then we're going to give all people who are in these moments, like, permission to do it because they're going to, you know, still get to be in paradise. And I think I understand the the fear of, of that, but I agree it has been a place the church has been wrong. Um, that, uh, and, and, that we really believe there is no place that that you are that God has not already been and that God cannot go and and so to remind and to to preach this theology of of suffering instead of an, and this has been sort of a, a refrain in my own theology lately but just the how how we so much like the God of glory we like the God to come in and rescue people and save everybody and make your life so blessed hashtag blessed and like all this stuff, right? Like make your life so good. And, and instead we have a God who suffers with us. Like that is different. And we don't super love the theology of the cross where we say like we believe in a God who sits with us in the crap and sits with us in the brokenness and suffering of life. Uh, but if we were better as a church, as church people of preaching a theology of suffering, I think people might not feel so alone and so they might not feel like that was the only option because they would have a a place where people are saying you're not alone you're not alone you're not alone god is with you i am with you i am speaking on behalf of a god that i believe doesn't leave you alone and i am here and i will sit with you in the ickiness of whatever you're going through that is different than like you know if you believed better and i'm not better than you yeah Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, I, I think, yeah, there is nowhere that you are, or you will be, or you can be that God has not already been, and has, and has shined light into. I think that's a great response. Well, that's how fast uh, 30 minutes can go. So thanks for being open to doing something different as we do. And it's always a fruitful conversation, and these questions will continue. We'll do this again, but we think it's worthwhile doing it in the context of worship together. So we'll stand together, and Brent will lead us in the prayer. of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise you call for songs of loudest praise